Welcome to another crossover episode with Writing with Machines. In this conversation, my colleagues and I reflect on the literacy skills and reading processes we teach in our composition classes. To see more from this and other Writing with Machines discussions, check out the show notes or search Writing with Machines as one single word. All right. Well, so um, Adam and I were chatting a little bit before before we got on and um, the library was not cooperating with Adam, so he didn't get a chance to get into this book. It's a really good book. I know, Catherine, you've been reading, um, mm-hmm. and Daniel, we've already kind of read and talked about it um, in another opportunity. Um, so, and and I'll just, so Adam, the chapters we're in, I think, are probably the best chapters in this book, to tell you the truth. Uh, it's her eighth and uh, eighth and ninth letter, and I'm struggling to find it. <laughs> 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 I beg to differ, Curry. I didn't think they were the best. So. Oh, good. I love it. I'm glad that we have a debate. <laughs> I say this only because I know you you enjoy a little uh, differences of opinion. So I do. It's my favorite. Um, awesome. Hey, Chubby. Good morning, everyone. You call me a bit sip of tea. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> good morning. You're right on time. Um, so, okay, so let me, uh, okay, so here's how I wanted to frame today's conversation. Um, I wanted us to think about s- the skills we hope to teach our composition students. Um, we can ping and pong and go all over the place a- around that and, and within the chapters. Um, but I feel like in thinking about emerging technologies, thinking about um, just what our students have been through these past couple uh, years of being remote, um, what we're all kind of experiencing right now in the semester, this slump. Um, I, I want us to try to like, like what what is it that we want our students to get from English 100, English 201, English 202 composition classes um, with regards to reading, with regards to writing. Um, and so, uh, Let's see. I had a passage I wanted to start with. And just want to make sure I got it. Okay. So, uh, yeah, I have it. Um, So this kind of just like maybe sets up that conversation. Um, So this is at the very beginning of letter eight. Oh, and hello, Shelly. Thank you for joining us. Good to see you. (laughs) Hi. Um, Okay, so I'm going to go for it. So the beginning of letter eight, I have little doubt that the next generation will go beyond us in ways we cannot imagine at this moment. As Alec Ross, the author of Industries of the Future wrote, 65% of the jobs our present preschoolers will hold in the future haven't even been invented yet. Their lives will be extended much beyond ours. They may well think very different thoughts. They will need the most sophisticated armatorarium of abilities that humans have ever acquired to date, vastly elaborated deep reading processes that are shared with and expanded through coding, designing, and programming skills, all of which will be transformed by the future that none of us, and she lists a lot of people, can now predict. So, it starts off kind of heavy-handed, right? And and we can pick that apart. But for me, that that is what I'm thinking about just in terms of my composition students. Like, okay, 
it's hard. You know, she uses this moment. This is our hinge moment. Like this is our, this is a moment in history where things are shifting on us. And as educators wanting to see our students equipped and successful in the future, I'm thinking about, well, what skills do they really need? um, And what can I offer them um, in my classes? So I wanted to start there. Like I said, it's heavy handed. So um, (laughs) I'm wondering how we're thinking about that, how we're reacting to that. And welcome, Donna. Hello. Good morning. I mean, so something that I know goes back and forth that I struggle with now, I'm thinking about like adults who are preparing for jobs that exist in this moment, not like yes. preschoolers. Right. Um, <laughs> is like that that back and forth between like the idea of like the purpose of a liberal arts education versus preparing um, students for their jobs which I think can overlap, but I also think there like are very different focuses. And I think that what we get from the quote you just read is very much focused on preparing students for jobs as opposed to that, like preparing students for life. Yes. Right. So the idea of wanting students to read and read deeply for like pleasure, for like personal meaning can overlap with like preparing students to read for like job places and stuff. But I think it, it does have a very different intent and focus. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's something that like, I always come back to and think about with our students because some of them are very, very job focused and sort of checking off the list in terms of classes to move forward. um, Whereas others are just more exploring and enjoying things. Mm -hmm. So I think that is just, a pull back and forth and trying to find some sort of balance for that in my classes. And I don't know, ways that students can explore other things or work on what it is they need to work on. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I'll just add to that. I had an interesting discussion with my hairstylist. I've been seeing her for like 15 years um, and she's very smart, very, you know, politically plugged in and just a good person to talk to. She never went to college and she was talking about her kids going to college. And, you know, she was talking about how frustrated she was. Why, why would kids have to take any classes that didn't directly lead into their careers? Like she just did not see any value in that. And I said, oh, well, I don't see education as purely about career preparation. And we had this long discussion about it. And she said she'd never thought of it that way. She did not think of education as having anything to do with anything other than, uh, you know, career prep. And I, you know, it's very interesting because I've always come at education from such a different perspective, which I realized is partially privilege, right? Um, To me, like I... I learned French and Russian, and I deeply value all of the effort and time I put into learning those languages, even though I don't use them in my work at all. To me, that's still this vital part of me and my brain and my learning uh, experience. And like, she just saw it completely differently. Mm-hmm. You know, she's like, oh, I, I wanted to be a hairstylist. Why would I ever take something that was? So it was very interesting to see how different. And I think. A lot of our students, many of our students do come in with more of that feeling like they're just anxious to get the degree they need for the job they need and the skills they need for their jobs. And I get that 100 percent. That said, 
just like I had in that conversation with her, I would love to impart with student to students as part of our learning experience, the joy of learning it beyond just, it's not just about careers. It is about careers and preparing for that, but we are here for so much more. And, and to me, there's just a ton of value in that liberal arts education that I received. Um, but I also realize, you know, not everybody sees it that way. And I respect that a hundred percent, but I, but I want to share that, that joy and that interest in just learning about things you don't absolutely need. And, and I realized too, that you can learn a lot of those things without going to school. And mm. that too is very, very true. However, will you, do you take the time to do that? Will you like, it's not like I would have learned to speak Russian on my own if I wasn't, if it wasn't part of getting my degree. Um, so it's, it's just sort of those mixed feelings of, you know, respect for this is just about careers. And then this desire to be like, but learning is so much more and education can be so much more than just about your careers. So, yeah. 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 yeah and, and I'll jump in and just say that I echo a lot of that. And especially in thinking about like this idea of exploration within an English class, I think essentially important in terms of like we're, Uh-oh. <laughs> I think Daniel froze. It very thoughtfully froze. <laughs> All right. No, there you're back. I think you're back. Oh, there we go. Okay. I, I went in my, into my house, so it's probably transferring back to Wi-Fi. That's probably what happened. Um, uh, but uh, so I was just saying that the skills we're trying to teach are reading and writing. But that's always, I, and I think we get really caught up in that, but that, it's impossible even in a college career, like a col the entirety of college to teach reading and writing. Like that is something that students, it's just a space for practicing that. But this idea that they're going to meet certain benchmarks de definitively by the end is not. So that exploration, I think is important, especially in terms of thinking about that skills idea, because mm -hmm. even in English classes, the idea that reading and writing the skills are building or in a biology class that they're learning certain skills they need for their career. I think that's a huge illusion because plenty of the stuff they're learning in any class is not anything they're ever going to use. And I think that overwhelms them, overwhelms students when they're in classes where they think everything is going to be important, which isn't. And I think that's the value of an English class is kind of, no, not everything is important, but maybe we should know a little about it, or maybe we should talk about it, or maybe we should engage with different things without that focus. And I think that's what scares students and frankly, a lot of educators that without that focus, it's like, well, what are you doing? Mm. But at the same time, I think that focus is kind of false to begin with, um, where we're trying to predict what skills someone will need down the line. And when you're talking, when you were saying that quote from Wolf, at first, mm -hmm. I was like, well, I wish she would have done that predicting earlier in the book. Um, but then I was like, well, no, because she would probably have predicted the wrong future. So, no. <laughs> <probably not>. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm thinking about you know, what I want my students to learn by the end of the course. Right. And I've been I've been wrestling with that this entire semester. Right? When I look at my course, what I build um, and how students are are working with that intrinsically or 
um, because they want a grade or just because like it's there in front of them. Um, joy of reading and writing is definitely top of that list. You know, I want my students to walk away with a a joy for understanding and engaging with both reading and writing in all its different forms. Um, and hopefully, you know, after the course, they'll find some way to incorporate maybe one thing they've learned, right? Like mm -hmm. into their either personal life or professional life. And it's really awesome this semester. I've had a couple of former students reach back and say, oh, I just used that idea you taught me. And I'm like, that was three semesters ago. That's really cool. Hmm. Um, but I, I want that for all of my students um, in preparing them for not only their professional goals, but also their personal goals. I, I think about my own college, right? My own time spent in college. My time spent in courses that I loved was based off the fact that my university was set up in a way where like certain courses weren't offered in certain semesters. So like I want to be an English major, but the literature course I want to take is only offered in the spring. And there's literally no other English courses to take. So I'm going to take some astronomy, right? Like I, let's, I like the stars. Let's, let's go sit in the planetarium all day. Best class I ever took. Mm -hmm. um, other courses that I just took along the way that were, you know, kind of out of like not having to fit a full schedule as opposed to like moving me towards some form of a professional career. And most of those classes I took outside of my major ended up being courses that I, I learned a lot from. Um, and then studying as an educator, I mean, we all know this, um, but especially when you're a high school educator, like 95% of what you learn in your education classes is not applicable to the high school or middle school classroom at all. Mm -hmm. you, know, mm -hmm. you, you learn all these things, you turn all these assignments in, and you never use that information again as a teacher. It doesn't come back up. And you're like, why, why did I spend all this time in an assessments class where they're like, oh, you got to calculate all the numbers and jot down all the students' names and you know, carry fractions and all this crazy stuff. And then you get to the school and they're like, here's power grader. It'll do all that for you. You just got to punch in the number. Like, why did I spend uh, $1,000 learning this, right? Yeah. So it's one of those things that when I think about our own students, like, what am I providing for them that is useful in their future? My, my course isn't just based off what we learn in an English class. There's a lot of sociology, psychology, you know, science in my course as well. And my students value that information. And so I, I really want them to walk away with that, that joy, but also the ability to, to think critically and examine critically, to not just accept what's put in front of them. And I think that's really important in this digital age where like, there's so much information coming at students and a lot of it is like false or just rumor. And many of our students accept it as fact without doing any further digging because that, that's the space they, I think, and in some ways have been taught in elementary, middle and high school. Whatever we give you is the truth, right? And so they don't dig any deeper because everything's so chunk and dump. Like I get it today, I've never used it again. But in our spaces, I think we really want them to, to value and cherish those lessons and know that like, no, this, this will assist you in the future and help you, you know, find your goals. And it doesn't matter if you're a mathematician or a STEM major, being in English class is going to help you in those fields more than, than you could imagine. And I don't think the opposite is always true. Maybe that's because I'm an English teacher, but <laughs> I always feel like what we teach is is the most important skills, especially at the 100 level that students can learn.
And so like in, in my position, I feel like that's a that's a huge weight to have on your shoulders. We're the first experience students get. And yeah. that experience can dynamically shift the way they'll engage with community college and education for the foreseeable future. And so deciding what's important is like that's a it's a huge task, but it's also, you know, it's a huge honor too that students can walk away from our class getting everything they need in that first class. And then they'll graduate and say, you know what, I learned a lot, but that English 100 class really did it for me, right? Like that's that's what I think I really want. Yeah, that's really cool, Debbie. There's so much that you just shared that that we'll loop back to and kind of pull apart and and, and add to. That's awesome. Um, Donna and Adam, Shelly, I know your mic's off. Do you want to jump in? Oh, no, I just forgot to turn it off. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, Donna, Adam, do you want to? Yeah, 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 I will. Um, gosh, yeah, Javi, you just said so much that, I, you know, I, I, I would love to respond to, but but the one thing that kind of is at the top of my head, I went to um, the thing for Black student success uh, that was yesterday. And what you said, Javi, about like, yeah, we're, we're like kind of a gatekeeper to college education and the English 100, you know, and that is a huge responsibility. And one thing that was brought up in in that session yesterday <clears throat> was that you know black students when they come into the classroom you want to keep them there and you have and this responsibility of of speaking to them and reaching them is so important in keeping them there and I, i'm so much more cognizant well i always have been but I'm more cognizant now after having had listening to students yesterday. I love it when we have meetings where students speak, you know, and, and that's just so important to keep that in mind that we really want to keep all those students there. You mm -hmm. know, we want to keep them there. And just one other comment I had about what you were saying, Jobby, and I may be way off here because I'm kind of a newbie to the whole concept of code switching, but I think in taking these various, you know, um, different types of courses in college gives us that ability to code switch because there's different literacies in different disciplines and to learn all of those literacies and to be able to code switch, you know, with those languages that, you know, that vary from biology to history to, you know, astronomy and physics, you know, and English, of course, in the humanities, I think really gives us that fluidity um, that, that we need just to, you know, navigate through life, you know? So it's my two cents. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Donna. Mm -hmm. Adam, do you want to, do you want to pop in? Yeah. Um, it's a joy to hear everybody speak about this. Uh, one of the things that, that stands out to me that we're all kind of speaking to is this idea of not knowing exactly where we, where our students are going to be. Um, and I think it speaks even to that passage that you read, right? There's there's no telling what even the next five years will look like when a lot of our students will be entering the world at large. Um, so, you know, what do we, what are the, uh, those basic fundamental things that we want to make sure they walk away with? And, you know, I hear critical thinking. Um, for me, it is um, agency mm. uh, and a willingness to, um dig into your resources so whether that's through technology as i'm suffering today <laughs> with my inability to get into the library um you know being able to like okay 
I know where I need to go, who I need to talk to to make sure that I can get myself up to speed with this technological issue, um, especially with the, the idea on technology, it changes fast. It develops so quickly. And what is, you know, dominating the, the paradigm, uh, you know, one year will change dramatically to the next. So how do we make sure that students are able to think critically to have agency in their world and not just their careers because I don't know I think that conversation of college being the thing that sets you up for your, your career is part of a big lie that a lot of us have been fed over the years to realize you know we get our college degree doesn't mean we get a job so how do we you know prepare students for that so for me a lot of that really does boil down to the critical thinking aspect the questioning what information you're being presented with but also taking agency in in utilizing your resources and in building a community that then you know broadens those resources um, and I think that really does speak to this role of technology in our world as well yeah for sure okay <laughs> yeah okay so um, so let's zoom in because so, I agree I think thinking I think is is that's that's connected connecting us all kind of in how we're, we're responding to this. Thinking, I think, is really uh, a major focus of Reader Come Home. I feel like that's what Marianne Wolf is really grappling with, right? Um, um, and then, and then her question is about these technologies. Um, which ones, if you develop habits around them, uh, afford thought processes, right? Afford critical thinking processes. And which ones uh, are more distracting or or may impede critical thinking? I want to read a quote. This is in the, the second letter we read today, um, where she kind of lays out the stakes. Um, and then I want to point to to to, to maybe another uh, jumping off point for us. So she she writes, "If we gradually lose the ability to examine how we think, we will also lose the ability to examine dispassionately how those who would govern us think." And I think that connects to what you were uh, uh, saying, Adam, about agency. And so she, the way she formulates it, right, is if I can think about my own thinking, I develop skill sets to think dispassionately about other people's thinking, especially those that seek to control my life or impede upon my life. Um, so when I think about English 100 and I think about English 202, I think about what I hope they gain from my class is... Um, uh, uh, the, the, I'll use Marianne Wolf's phrase, cognitive patience, right? This sort of like ability to value slowing down and thinking. And so, and this is another phrase Marianne Wolf uses, um, what technologies of reoccurrence? So like what technologies have this like built into them loops me back to think about my own thinking. And what's funny, Jabi, is when I read that, like a lot of these two chapters, and she's like, okay, Virginia Woolf is who you read to do this or whatever. I'm like, well, what about just looking at the stars? Like looking at the stars makes me think about my thinking. <laughs> like, or looking at a fire is that kind of slow, contemplative, habit-forming practice that does let me think about my own thinking, right? And so, I don't know. I, I, so I, I, let me just kind of, I'll stop rambling there. What do we value? Like, how do we value that? And what does that look like in 100 or 202? And what are the tools, the technologies that afford thinking about our thinking, especially if we what we want to Donna's point 
is to be that class that keeps our students with us, right? That really is not gatekeeping, but like, like, like a, an invitation, right? Okay, I'll stop rambling. <laughs> So I'll jump in. Oh, go ahead, oh. No, go ahead, Jeffy. Okay. Um, I was reminded of something that I do or used to do with my classes when I met twice a week in person that I haven't done recently because of having that limited class time. But um have if any of you have seen the the TED talk about the marshmallow building thing. Not the not the delayed gratification. People get those two things confused, but about how children, I mean, not how children, you do an experiment where you give students, um, I can't remember, I think it's spaghetti, dry spaghetti, one marshmallow and tape, and they have to build the tallest structure that they can. And um, who, who, and in the TED talk, he goes over this and I let the students experience it before watching the TED talk. Um, you know, building their spaghetti structure and the who performs the best is engineers and kindergartners and everybody in between doesn't do so well, right? And so that literally five-year-olds will perform better in this experiment than other college adults, right? Or anybody except engineers who do know how to build things, thank goodness, <laughs> And I let them experience like this. And the reason, creative thinking, the ability to think creatively. And it just shows how much we have taken, we take that away from students as they learn that ability to, to think creatively. Um, and that that kind of creative thinking is exactly what I want to help students sort of discover the joy of because that doesn't, you know, whatever comes in the future, it's that creativity that is so precious and valuable. And that's what we're always going to need, no matter what the future looks like, creative thinking. And um, just helping students sort of see that and value that because for so many, the that school experience through high school has been about taking that creativity away from them. And they might not even realize that's what's been happening. But to me, anything that when you test for things that that you can answer by filling in a bubble, you are taking away their creative thinking. And um, so and that's. Yeah. I feel like my my list of what I want students to take away from my class is, is continuing to grow or I'm being reminded of things that like I do in my class, but I take them. I guess I don't think about them a lot because they they work well. So metacognition, thinking about thinking is is built into journals and, and many of our courses. But I, I name that for students and really get them to think about their thinking throughout our learning process, which is, you know, of everything that my students do in class, they often name that getting an opportunity to journal is perhaps like the thing they value the most because they're reflecting on their learning and realizing, oh, wow, I, I am growing. I am not the same person week one that I am week three, that I am week 10, that I am week 13. Um, I think that's that's tough for all of us, right? Like even in our own, you know, professions now, you, we still don't get enough time to reflect as we would like to. Often our reflection happens at the end of the semester when we're like super tired, it's summertime, 
and we're finally reflecting on our course, or we don't start reflecting until August and we're like, how did that go for me in January or like last October, right? Like it's, it's a tough space to like be in as an educator is making that time to actually be metacognitive. Um, our, our students struggle with it too. They, in, in high school and middle school, it's rare that they get time to think about what they've learned, why it's important, and how it will apply to not only today, but the future. And so I, I really think that that, like, that piece is so important to, to an, any student and any educator. And to, to piggyback off what you just said, Catherine, that creativity too, right? Like, you are absolutely correct. You know, our middle and high school systems stamp the creativity out of kids. And they come to, high school, to college uh, thinking that everything they do has a template for it and that your own creativity or your own thoughts are not as important as what your professor thinks, which is, I think, the furthest from the truth. And in a lot of higher education institutions, we do reinforce that, right? Like, whether by accident or on purpose, we're reinforcing this idea that, like, no, my thoughts are way more important than what you have to say. And what you should do is put my thoughts on the page so when I read them, that I agree with my same thoughts, which is like, that's, that's insane, right? Like, to, to do to people. And I think that we're in a space now when we're looking at the cusp of education post-COVID that, like, we do have an opportunity to, like, honor that creativity and give our students back that opportunity to, like, show their thinking to get that agency like Adam listed or, you know, one of the things I wrote down, authentic authenticating their voices, right? Saying that like, no, I care what you have to say because it's helping me learn as an educator to teach others about the way that you learn, which is more important to me than the way that I learned because the way that I learned was absolutely wrong. Even though I'm in a space where I feel like I, I, I'm in the profession that I absolutely love and I, I have the career that I want, the way I learned was incorrect. It should not have been so hard. It should not have been so expensive, right? And how can I get my students to a space where like they're, they're recognizing that like, no, my thoughts matter and I want to share them with people so that I can learn about others and, and really be in a space that it is learning. Yeah, Javi, that kind of, um, just kind of riffing off of what you had just said, there's something I want for my students, which is to be, um, comfortable in a space of not knowing or not understanding something. Um, I think so many of our students were, you know, as I was shaped to, to believe that you need to know the answer as quickly as possible. Um, and then once you get the answer, move on to the next question. Um, if, if we can get our students to be okay with uncertainty or not knowing that discomfort that comes with that, I think that will prep them for whatever discomforts come their way because they know how to slow down, look into the fire, be with their thoughts a little bit, and then use their agency to reach out and, and, and get the answers that they need. I'll just jump in on that too, because that both of these, uh, both Adam and Javi have gotten me thinking about um, just the way we value time in different spaces. And I'm thinking now in terms of like, Okay, go ahead. My daughter, Sarah, is going to go see the biggest spider in the backyard. Um, uh, so 
um, in terms of valuing time, because one struggle, like in thinking, because I'm totally, it's funny, I used to be totally sort of um, anti-online teaching, and now I've, I've gotten more like I'm not, and I think it's a good space. But one thing I've been struggling with is like time in person. Now, traditionally, time in person has been seen as like time on task. And I've never agreed with that. Like everyone, like you need to be surveilling your students that everyone is doing the thing they're supposed to be doing. Because so much, I think I'll, I'll start with like, hey, 15 minutes, discuss these things. And then conversations, seven, 10 minutes in, will go to, well, what classes are you taking next semester? And, and the students will start talking about those things that they don't get to talk about usually with other students. And I think thinking about our own like classroom spaces as spaces of contemplation and and uh, success is part of that, allowing those conversations where they're like supporting each other and things that don't have to do with our class. And I'm thinking that with my on with online spaces, like fully online spaces, like how to build that in, because so much of online education seems to instead be no time on task and students taking those classes online also want that time to be time on task because that's they're there because it's hard for them to fit school into their world so they just want to check the boxes um, uh, and get that content done when so much of it should be exploratory and i think that's an interesting divide that still exists while i think we're in a post-covid world where the online and i think even before covid um, this wasn't true the online in-person distinctions are not as clear, even as people want to try to make them very clear and that these are very different things. I think they shouldn't be. And part of that is like reclaiming contemplation and these types of practices in those online spaces too. I think it's just something I've been, this is getting me thinking about a little bit more. That's, I'll, I'll jump in real quick. That So I remember early like online teaching training, it, it the advice we were getting about design was you need to make your content like, like at their fingertips, right? Like chunk it out, like shorten it up, like get, get them from here to here to here and make it really clear, like how, how to thread through. And I kept thinking, like, it kept bugging me to your point, Daniel. I'm like, I actually like want something like sandpaper in my online course design. I want something where they like, they dip in to get out quickly, but it like, like they slows them down. Like they have to like sit with this stuff and it's got texture to it and you can't, you can't move quickly through it. It like, it makes you stick to it. Right. That, and no instructional designer thought I had good ideas. (laughs) Um, But so, but this gets at, and I totally hear you too, Daniel, like, okay, the affordances of the classroom space when we're there together, the affordances of the online space when they're, when we're there at different times, but our thoughts are there together. Um, it makes me think about one, another thing that Marianne Wolf is really worried about, which is distraction. And I think this gets, this gets at this formulation she offers. And I wonder what we think about this. Um, she, 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 she has this line and it repeats a few times that the information that we gain needs to be able to build into knowledge. And then the knowing that we gain should build into wisdom. So she has this kind of like uh, 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 epistemological ontology where it's, you know, my, the 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 things I read give me information that builds my 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 thinking, and then my thinking builds my being, like way of being in the world, my wisdom, right? How I how I am, right? Which I think there's something to that, I guess. 
Um, but when I when we apply that to the textbook or we apply that to the TED talk or when we apply that to the podcast, it gives us a criteria to think about, OK, well, how does this allow my students to form habits around taking out information, thinking about it, building knowledge and then taking a step back to contemplate to build that wisdom? OK, that's pretty helpful, I guess. Um, OK, I'm rambling again, but let me let me bring it back to what we were talking about earlier. We go wherever we want the journal. For me and Shelly, I saw you in the chat kind of give this a thumbs up that your students really, whatever happens with generative AI, whatever happens to the future of the academic essay, I feel like the journal is that technology of reoccurrence, that the journal, whatever they're reading, whatever they're thinking about, if they're looking at the stars, they can take that star and put it into information and think about it. And over the course of time, it becomes knowledge. And by the after you know all that work they do in their journal it becomes wisdom it becomes a way of being when you go and look at stars or when you just does that make sense so i i feel like we're on to something here with the journal and i feel like as compositionists that journal piece can be really really helpful for to us as we as we move forward um and think about how to teach writing teach reading thinking etc well i think like one of the things that my students specifically mentioned when they're like reflecting on their journal in their journal, um, lots of layers to it, but it's that they, they don't feel pressure. Like they can just be in that journal space and they can be messy and like unorganized. And that's sort of like, they take pleasure in that. It's, it's like this stress-free space to write um, and communicate. And Right. I, I encourage them to be messy in other places too, but there's just like struggle with that. And like the journal space, they're just like, they're comfortable um, with just that, like just being and like, I don't know, are more honest about things. So, yeah. Yeah. Building that, that, that confidence. Right. I think a, a lot of our students come in doubting themselves. And so, how can we support them and and like you all named earlier, like being okay with being wrong, you know, like and what is wrong really, right? Um, I've had a lot of that this semester when I'm talking with students and they, they when they make mis mistakes in writing or they do something and they see me react to it, they're immediately, oh, I'm sorry, I did that wrong. I'm like, no, you're not wrong. You just you did it in a way that I've never seen it before, which isn't wrong. It's actually mm -hmm. like. I wish I had taught other people to do it this way, right? And so it, it's one of those spaces where I think, once again, journals are a space that are like, they're a space that most people come into recognizing like there's no way I can be wrong in this space. It's, a, it's my journal, right? Uh, I'm writing in it. It's my ideas. It's my thoughts. My professor isn't going to say my thoughts are wrong. But when I do the same thing with an essay, immediately right. that tone changes right right so like oh there's a right way to write an essay and there's a wrong way to write an essay and a lot of what you know we've been looking at with lingu linguistic justice and you know redefining what it means to construct an essay I i'm now in this space where like i have to rethink the way that i um grade essays or even accept essays like I i'm I, I kind of accept everything now because it's like to say that it's wrong is is actually wrong and it also builds the student's confidence and ability to like you know 
to use the knowledge that we're gaining in our class and demonstrate that wisdom like you you named Carrie. Like that's I think so important for us as educators to kind of continue molding that confidence as a student because it does take a long time to be confident. And many of us in this space, we're still not confident and we're the professors, right? <laughs> yeah, for sure. Go ahead, Shelly. I've had, well, going back to like the reading piece, because um, I'm doing 201 this semester and they're halfway into their like literature circles um, reading slash writing project. But I've had a lot of students reflecting in the journals that they don't read. They don't like to read like novels, things like that. It's just not what they do. But they had a choice between like five different texts for this. And so there's five groups with five students in each group. Everyone got the first their first choice. It just it worked out really well this semester. Um, no one had to go to second choice. But like in those like reflections with the journals, they're just like, wow, I'm actually like able to keep up with the reading in this like book that they had like choice in. And in my choosing those books, I also chose books that were more like readable in terms of like sentence structure and things like that, even though there's like some very like heavy hitting authors in that, right? I didn't choose things that were like intentionally dense or difficult to read. Um, and so I don't know, it's like really interesting seeing these responses where students are just like, wow, or, and they also had their response because we did like, Zoot suit as the like piece of drama, and those reactions were pretty. Um, they're just like amazed. They like mm. loved it. They like never thought they would like reading a play because of like whatever Shakespeare trauma, um, right? Like all these things, and they were so invested in it. And so it was like interesting for me to think about. Okay, like what is it that's like bringing them into these readings? These like students are like, I don't like to read. Um, and just like in their journals as a space where I'm just like trying to kind of figure it out based on what they give me. I love it. Hmm. So I, again, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have an agenda here. So, I'm, and I'm really sitting with a lot of what we're saying. Um, these, these, these really cool experiences where students are engaging with texts, Jabi, what you just said um, makes me think like it, it links to what Daniel put in the chat. So like, what, what students expect about the essay space, what students expect about the discussion space is different what they expect about the journal space. And even if we invite them to do heterodox things in discussion spaces and essay spaces, they, they come in with some skepticism, right? Um, and so I think there is something to, you know, thinking of the process of reading, the process of writing and letting there be Okay, there is this endpoint where you you do get to perform a bit, you get to refine a bit, right, and and do it in a way that is your voice, and it it's meant to be flexing, and it's meant to be impressing, and it's meant to be challenging, right, to be given your audience and how you're thinking about that. But let there also be this other space in your process where you're not worried about that audience yet, and you are, you know, that is a, a comfortable space for you to just be exploring, to be contemplative. Um, yeah. So, and I, I love all of that stuff and I don't necessarily want to say anything like didactic about any of those things. Cause I'm so in a space of just, I I'm, this, yeah, I, I'm not sure what we should be doing for sure, <laughs> but yeah, that, so this is a good conversation so far. We've got 15 minutes left. And again, I don't really want to impose anything. Are there any other thoughts, takeaways from this book, any other directions we want to go in? I was just going to jump in very briefly in response to what, um, 
the idea of Shakespeare trauma and, and everything that Javi and Shelley were both saying um, in my 201 class, one of my favorite units is poetry in part because a lot of students come in with this really sort of like, I don't like to read poetry attitude. And, and it's because of their negative experiences about how to read poetry in high school, which is just usually so didactic and boring. And there's this impression that there's one way to interpret a poem and they have to pull everything apart, which is not pleasurable to them at all. And so I, I try to erase all that and say, let's, let's just have fun. Let's, let's, you don't have to interpret. We don't have to, we're not going to write a poem. I mean, we're not going to write an essay about a poem. We're not going to do any of that. We're just going to see about enjoying some poems and they get really into it. And then we end with a poetry project where they write a poem. Um, but it, it really helps change their perspective. Cause I'm like, we're not going to interpret. You can interpret if you want to, if that's pleasurable to you. But what I want in during the small time that we have is just to let ourselves enjoy it the way we might enjoy music and think about what is pleasurable, even if it's just one line in a poem that speaks to you or makes you think about something. Let's enjoy that and uh, that moment and appreciate it rather than all trying to interpret one thing in one way, which is really uh, the death of <laughs> poetry and right. for for the vast majority of people. Yeah, and that's, okay. So that, that makes me think of kind of where we started, Javi um, and Donna, thinking about English as a class that is, for a lot of students, that first entry point into higher education. And if they enjoy it, if they feel like they belong in it, if they feel validated and affirmed, that can be transformative. And also, <laughs> I want to give them certain skill sets. Like I want to give them certain like, like tools and things, not necessarily so they get jobs and not necessarily because that's going to help them in the next class, but just because as a reader, as a video game player, as a, as a poet, as a writer, like I've seen myself grow because I've practiced certain skills and, and right. And I, I it's, it, I see value in that. Um, so just, I, so I'll just throw this out as a salient example. Um, today I'm going to teach the Stanley parable, a really cool video game in my English 202 class. And the next week, all my students are playing a game called 1979 revolution, which is like a docu game about, uh, the Iranian revolution in 1979, um, it created by Iranian um, um, game designers about real events, but fictitious characters. Not everybody likes video games, just like not everybody likes poetry. <laughs> so it's not like I've hit on some like, this is the future. We all, this is how we learn to read now and write. That's not it at all. Um, and, and I want us to be able to like have deep conversations and analyze um, um, the rhetorical properties of these games. So what I'm teaching them this week is how to journal with video games. So taking screenshots at key moments is really important. So I have to teach them, you know, if you're on a computer, it's the F whatever button. If you're on an Xbox, it's this button, right? So we need those screenshots. And then when, don't, so keep playing the game, but when you have time to think about your playing, Here's what you can do with those screenshots. You can journal around them. You can link them to some of the other things we're reading. If you're seeing connections, right? Bring some quotes in. Those are going to become building blocks for discussions, for essays, that kind of stuff. So 
annotation as a general skill set, you know, when we think and we think about specific practices, when we think about books and annotation, annotation is is, I think, um, you know, part of that contemplative practice that we bring to any medium. Right. Um, it'll kind of look different in different annotations, but it's possible. I can draw out concrete things. I can think about those things. I can make, bring connections. And and then I've got this sort of technology of reoccurrence. Right. My thinking was locked in. I can go do other things. I can come back to it. Remember, I can think about how I was thinking. I can use that and I can move forward. Right. Um, so it's a tricky balance we do, we do as English teachers. Right. It's I want you to enjoy and I want you to see yourself in my class. And I also want to stretch you and I want to give you some things that you don't have yet. Um, um, yeah. So anyway. You make me think about how. Uh, once again, in my own time as a student, the best times I had in classes were when a professor introduced an idea, concept, or activity that I had never learned or seen before, right? Like, or that I've already engaged in something, right? Like music or poetry, and now you're making it cooler than it already is, right? Mm. And so th th that style is, I think, really cool for students and for us as professors. Like, you know, I get a chance to share, you know, my love for comic books, my, my love for music with my students. And they're like, oh, well, I've never read it like this before. You know, I, I still have students in week 12 who have just opened March and discovered that it's a graphic novel and are like, oh, I, I've been looking at this all semester. I think I bought the wrong book because it's a, it's a comic book. I'm like, no, that, that's the right book. And they're like, yeah. oh, I've been holding it. I, I went to the bookstore and they're like, no, that's the right book. I'm like, are you sure it's an English class? So that, that aspect yeah. of being able to like introduce our students to new concepts in a new way, right? Like to even tell them like when you're an English student, even when you're sitting in your living room watching TV and you can pick apart your favorite show and, notice the rhetorical devices or see where you're being persuaded, turn on the subtitles and, and, and notice where the commas and the semicolons are like, you know, an English student gets to be an English student in the world, right? Cause that yeah. what we teach is applicable everywhere. And yeah. once again, in my opinion, as an English teacher, but yeah. I think that that joy we introduce to students about engaging with concepts in a different way or repairing like the trauma that they've experienced through Shakespeare or poetry or even writing essays is, is a valuable skill, not only for us, but for them as students to kind of overcome these obstacles. Because in the real world, in their professional and personal lives, they're going to have things just like that. They're going to meet people who try to introduce them to a new concept, and they'll either be resilient against it or show resilience while trying to learn it, right? And that, I think that's a valuable um, tool for students. And I mean, I'm sort of like thinking back about some of my college classes, right? Some of those reflections, right? Like, like the astronomy was like my absolute favorite. But like, even within my major, I took, I focused on like, I did American studies and like American literature and all of that stuff. But I took a significant number of British literature classes to take classes with one professor. And that's because he made it fun. Like I had, Four classes that covered Shakespeare, two of them entirely Shakespeare, um, with him. And it's not like I was like loving Shakespeare when I started, 
Um, but he stacked the plays in a way that it was like most accessible to most complicated. He could like recite like any moment from any play, basically. Um, he was up there flailing around, right? There weren't assignments. Like we wrote a paper for the class and then midterm and final. And he did like a big review for each of those. So we were like prepared to take it. There was like no stress connected to it. It was just like, we're going to read and I'm going to reread these things and flail about, and then we're going to talk about them. And it wasn't like, it wasn't this like high stress space that like Shakespeare would be for just people in general. And that was like the entire class. And there were people who were not English majors who were like in those classes and they were not loving Shakespeare, but they like took them for like a variety of like liberal arts, like all these things that it like fulfilled requirements for. And like, everybody was engaged and it was just like really interesting to think about that because he wasn't focused on like you have to get x y and z out of this he's like i love shakespeare let's all love shakespeare and that was just like what the class did that's awesome i say we end on the note of loving shakespeare (laughs) (laughs) um so uh so just a heads up uh um for the next meeting there's not really a set topic. Uh, it's kind of an open space. So I'd love for those of us who've kind of been here for many of these things and, and who are really kind of thinking about these emergent technologies, our students, our roles as English composition teachers, I would love for some of us to suggest topics. And so if you want to email me or even like email me with this group, um, we, we could kind of, yeah, let, let's come up with a topic together. If you don't, I'll think of something. But It'd be better if <laughs> the last, the very, so we have two more. The very last one I, I was thinking is a good one for us to like, what do we do over the summer? Like, like all these things we've thought about, the, the, the experiences we've had teaching, the things we see our students doing, that can be, uh, what, what, what are we going to adjust about our assignments? What new things we're going to create? So that can be that last one. So if you think of something else to do for the second to last one, um, let me know. And that's what we'll do. So if that's cool. Thank you all so much. I really appreciate you coming at eight in the morning and sharing. It's so good. Hope you all have a good day. My day started right. Like now I'm so excited to go teach. (laughs) Awesome. That's awesome. Enjoy your afternoon, everyone. Or your morning.